There's an interesting historical parallel with our text today in 2 Timothy that occurred almost 1,500 years later in church history, in the life of William Tyndale. William Tyndale lived from 1494 to 1536. He was an English biblical scholar. He became a leading figure in the Protestant Reformation in England. He was the first translator of the Bible into English. And for that, he received, believe it or not, persecution from the organized church at the time. He was arrested for this work in 1535, and he was put in a castle dungeon in Fulford, outside of Brussels. And in 1536, he was executed. But when Tyndale was in the Fulford Castle in jail, he wrote to the governor, and he said this, I entreat your lordship that by the Lord Jesus, that if I must remain here for the winter, you would beg the commissary to be so kind to send me from the things of mine which he has, a warmer cap, I feel the cold painfully in my head, also a warmer cloak, for the cloak I have is very thin, but most of all, my Hebrew Bible, grammar, and dictionary, that I may spend my time in that pursuit. So he begged for warmer clothes, and above all, the Hebrew Bible. And this request is very similar to Paul's final request from prison in our text today. This is the 15th expository sermon in our series Guarding the Gospel in a Godless World. Next week will be our final sermon in this book. And as you recall, this is, this is Paul's last will and testament to Timothy. He's in a Roman prison. He's going to be executed soon. He's writing this to his beloved spiritual son, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But his focus is on encouraging Timothy to take up the mantle after he is gone, to remain strong, committed to guarding the gospel that he's been entrusted with, using his gifts to preach the word and to be strong against false teachers. And last week we saw Paul give Timothy his faith perspective on the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of living sacrifice to the Lord, and toward the end of our lives we are to pour ourselves out to the Lord. He also talked about throughout life he had fought the good fight of faith. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith. And he was looking forward to that crown of righteousness that he would receive after he died, along with all believers who looked forward and loved his coming. Well, in today's text, Paul is going to conclude his letter uh, with this passage and then the passage we'll look at next week and he's going to be expressing his personal needs so follow along as I read God's word 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verses 9 through 15 do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica Crescens has gone to Galatia Titus to Dalmatia Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. 
When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That ends the reading so far of God's word. In this text, we're going to find what should be the realistic expectation of pastors and of all believers in the Christian life. There will be disappointments, and there will be relational, physical, and spiritual necessities that we must seek out. And so the first point that God wants us to see from our text is Paul's painful disappointments. His painful disappointments, desertion, and opposition. He starts off with this urgent request to Timothy to do his best to come to him soon. And then he gives us the reason for that in verse 10. He says, for or because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now here Paul relays this painful disappointment that he's had late in his ministry That his companion, a fellow servant of the Lord, has left him in the lurch. The Greek word for he left actually communicates he abandoned, he forsook him. Now this separation wasn't just geographical, it was spiritual. Twice in Paul's letters he has mentioned Demas in a positive way, that he's been his fellow servant. Once in Philemon verse 24 and and again in Colossians 4, 14. During his first imprisonment, Demas was in Rome with Paul and served the church there faithfully. He was a friend of Paul's. He was not a lightweight in terms of his experience and commitment to the Lord. He was part of the inner circle in close communion with Paul and other New Testament leaders. But he did not stick it out when things got really, really tough for Paul. There's no suggestion that Demas denied the faith or became a heretic. Calvin writes this, but we are not to suppose that he completely denied Christ and gave himself over again to ungodliness or the allurements of the world, but only that he cared more for his own convenience and safety than for the life of Paul. He was overcome by his dislike for the cross and decided to look to his own interests. So Demas probably had no intentions of giving up Christianity. Demas was not a villain, but Paul's assessment of him at that time was in love with this present world or this present age. Did he leave Rome? Because Rome at the time was a hotbed for persecution And to just be associated with Paul might mean you are thrown into prison as well and killed. Did he have business in Thessalonica? Other friends or relatives that he had to go see? We don't know. But he abandoned Paul. Deep hurts can often come from the people you love. Not your enemies, but from those who served alongside of you, served the Lord. We're an example to you of faith and 
servant-like work for the kingdom. Well, then there was this other disappointment of Paul's, the opposition of a man by the name of Alexander. Look at verse 14 and 15. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, there's some debate as to who this is. Alexander was a pretty common name at that time. And Alexander is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. He was excommunicated along with Hymenaeus. But maybe this wasn't that same man. It seems that he might have been from Troas, where Paul was probably arrested and then sent to Rome. Because Paul is warning Timothy about him right after he asks him to go to Troas and pick up his cloaks and his books. Well, the term great harm is literally translated, informed many evil things against me. And so Alexander may have brought false testimony against Paul during the first stage of his most recent trial. Paul says this man also strongly opposed our message. And he's talking about the gospel. He strongly opposed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why he warns Timothy when he goes through Troas, be on the lookout for Alexander. Now, even though this man might have been responsible for Paul being arrested and sentenced to death, Paul doesn't seek revenge, does he? He leaves this in the hands of the Lord. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He knew God would ultimately get the justice. But you know what, when people harm us who are opposed to the gospel, we need to curb our anger. We need to realize that if it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, God would justly have vengeance on all of our evil deeds too. So, by God's grace, what are we to do when enemies hurt us and persecute us? We're to bless those who persecute us and not curse. We're to pray for our enemies that God might be merciful to them. So we've seen Paul's deep disappointment with someone who's deserted him and someone who fiercely opposed him. The second point that God wants to show us from our text is Paul's companionship necessities. His companionship necessities. What are those? Committed friends. We've already seen in verse 9 how Paul urges Timothy to do his best to come to him. And in the Greek, this do your best is in the aorist imperative. And what this means is, it means hurry up, have zeal, have urgency, expedite this process. Paul's desiring Tim to be with him. Why? Because he's lonely. He's broken hearted. He wants to see his beloved son in the faith one more time to be encouraged by him and to encourage him as well and he doesn't know whether his sentence of death is to be fulfilled and so or he doesn't know when it's going to be filled and so winter is on the horizon as well and he has some physical needs as we'll see in just a moment but then Paul mentions three other men who are no longer with them these men haven't abandoned Paul Paul actually may have sent them away. They left to fulfill 
the work of mission in other churches, in other areas of the world. We don't know anything about Crescens, but that he was called to Galatia. We know a lot about Titus. Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. A letter is written to Titus by Paul. Paul calls him his partner, his fellow worker. He accompanied Paul on many different trips. He was a dedicated aide to Paul, and he was also a teacher. He went to serve the church in Corinth. He hand-delivered 2 Corinthians to that church. And when he and Paul went to Crete, Paul wanted Titus to stay there, to continue to minister to believers. And after that, he returned to Paul in Rome. But we can assume that Paul sent Crescens and Titus to leave Rome to go and minister elsewhere. Now, since we're dealing with men who left Paul or were sent by him for the good reason of being called on mission, let's jump to this man by the name of Tychicus in verse 12. Tychicus was a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant of the gospel, and I say he was a man worthy of confidence. Why is that? Well, during the first Roman imprisonment of Paul, Paul commissioned him to carry to their destinations three different epistles. To take the epistle of Ephesians to the church, to take the epistle of Colossians to the church, and more than likely the epistle of Philemon as well. But here we're told that Paul sent him to Ephesus. Why? Well, we assume it was to deliver this letter, 2 Timothy to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, and to also be Timothy's replacement because Timothy was going to come and see Paul. They needed a pastor there, so he was sort of their supply pastor for a while. But notice, Paul is not entirely alone, is he? Look at verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Boy, Luke was a remarkable friend of Paul, a fellow servant with him, He is referred to by Paul in Colossians 4.14 as the beloved physician. Yes, he was a doctor. He was loyal to Paul. He was a Gentile, frequently with Paul in his travels. He wrote, of course, the book or the gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. He had been with Paul on his second missionary journey and most of his third missionary journey, And then he was also with Paul during his first and second imprisonment in Rome. He was the doctor and friend that Paul needed. He indirectly or directly served as Paul's secretary. He and Paul were educated men and men of culture. Paul's mention of Luke alone being with him, I think, is a reference to the fact that Luke is the only one there, and he needs more help. He's short on help, not just to support Paul, but Paul was still ministering to the church of Rome, even from his prison cell. And so Luke was assisting him with that. Well, finally, we come to the heartwarming story connected with Paul's request of Timothy in the middle of verse 11. Look at that with me. He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now this is a remarkable story. 
In Acts chapter 13 through chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Barnabas took John Mark with them. Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. And so they first went to Cyprus. And then from there, they went on a boat trip to Perga. Something happened. And John Mark deserted them. Deserted Paul and his cousin Barnabas. Apparently he wasn't prepared for the rigors of missions. Maybe he had difficulty taking the gospel to the Gentiles. We're not sure. And then by the time the Jerusalem council came about and right afterwards, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey and Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement. Such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. Boy, this goes to show that even really godly leaders uh, sometimes cannot resolve issues between them right away. And so uh, Paul refused to take John Mark because he felt like he was immature perhaps, not worthy of this mission. So Barnabas took John Mark on his own mission trip to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went to Syria and Cilicia. But here's the great story of God's grace and reconciliation. We don't know how, we don't know exactly what happened, but the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, brought these men to restoration and forgiveness. Mark must have seen the error of his ways and matured. Paul maybe softened a little bit and saw the progress of Mark and his commitment to the Lord. Later, we hear of them both being together during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And he writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And now he's uh, uh, a more mature believer, and during Paul's second Roman imprisonment, this aging apostle gives his young associate the highest accolade by asking Timothy, his spiritual son, Lord, you know, Timothy, please get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for me for ministry. What an example of someone who has failed at first, deserted, betrayed Paul and Barnabas, but by God's grace, He is restored, and they become good Christian friends and fellow servants of Christ. And so we see Paul responding to these disappointments late in his ministry and his desire for companionship from his friends. He urges Timothy to come and bring Mark so that the four of them, Timothy, Mark, Paul, and Luke, can be together spend some time together, pray together, and maybe strategize about the future when Paul will no longer be there. But the third point Paul, I mean, God wants us to see from our text is Paul's physical and spiritual necessities. Warm clothing, good books, and God's word. Look at verse 13 with me. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all, the parchments. So it's likely that 
as I said before, Paul was arrested in Troas and then taken to Rome. And because this was uh, a quick uh, event and perhaps he, he was prevented from bringing his things with him and he had to leave his things with a man by the name of Carpus. He left his cloak, he left his books, he left his parchments. And Paul, as you recall, is in this cold, damp dungeon underground. The only light that comes in is from this vent or this open space above him. And if Paul's sentence of death was to be delayed a little longer, he would be without sufficient protection from the cold. And so he asked for this cloak. Go by Troas and pick up my cloak. Now this word cloak is uh, a word for this large, thick piece of wool with a hole in the middle, but kind of like a, a poncho. And it would also be used as a blanket. But think about this. Paul didn't think it was unspiritual in this inspired epistle at the very end to ask for a physical need, for, to ask Timothy to pick up the cloak on the way because I'm going to be cold this winter if I'm not killed first. And then Paul is concerned about another need of his, isn't it? He has a need for his books and parchments. Now scholars have tried to discern what is exactly, uh, what are exactly these things. Uh, the, the books that are referred to are probably papyrus rolls, uh, like rolls of paper that have been written on. So notes that Paul kept. Uh, some say that perhaps they were notes of Jesus' teachings or there were copies of, of the epistles that he wrote. And then what are the parchments? Well, parchments are made out of animal skins. They're more permanent than papyrus rolls. And what many scholars believe he's referring to here is the Word of God, the Old Testament. So here was Paul, concerned even in his dying days for his intellectual and spiritual growth. He, he sought the comfort and the strength that God's Word brings in time of need. You know, in a famous sermon on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, even the apostle must read. He is inspired, yet he wants books. He has been preaching at least for 30 years, and yet he wants books. He has seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He's had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. Calvin says, but let us know that this passage gives to all believers a recommendation of constant reading that they may profit by it. I'm so thankful we have a bookstore. Because, you know, that is there because we see the value of reading good Christian books, and especially God's Word. And so Paul has here expressed his physical, intellectual, and spiritual needs in his last days in order to finish well. Now you might be thinking, all this is very interesting, Pastor. We now know what Paul was thinking, needing, and asking in his final days, but so what? What difference does it make? Well, we have here inspired, authoritative example of the apostle living the Christian life faithfully until the very end. And we can learn from him how we will be able to live the Christian life 
faithfully and finish well. God shows us here realistic expectations and needs that we have as believers. The first thing I want to point out is the end of this letter, I think, is a wonderful illustration of the power of Christ and his gospel to transform people's lives. The gospel transforms people into committed disciples of Christ who count the cost. And so my first application point is a question. Has the gospel transformed you to serve Christ and his kingdom first? What is the good news? What is the gospel? It is that God sent his son to this world to provide us with salvation a salvation that we could not attain ourselves. Why? Because God requires perfect righteousness according to His commandments. He's given us His laws to show us how we fall short of these commandments. We don't even come close to fulfilling His righteous requirements. But God is also just. He must punish all of our sins in hell. And we cannot atone for those sins. We cannot pay off the debt that we owe to God. This is why Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and came to this earth to become a man and take on a human nature yet without sin and still remaining God. He came to be our substitute. He came to fulfill the law's requirements on our behalf. And He did it perfectly so that He would impute those righteous deeds, those perfect deeds to our account. But he not only came to do that, he also came to go to the cross to have our sins imputed to his account so that he would experience the wrath and judgment that we deserved on the cross through his suffering, his bleeding, and his dying. He died physically, but on the third day he rose from the dead proving that he was indeed God the Son and the Messiah, that he had victory over death and sin and the devil for us. And it confirmed that his work was accepted by the Father on behalf of those he came to die for who would believe in him. And so you see, when God causes a person to be born again, they recognize their sin, their inability to fulfill the commandments. They recognize that none of their good works gains acceptance with God and they turn away from relying on their good works and they turn away from a life of sin and they rely entirely on who Jesus is and what he came to do for their salvation. And because of that, they're declared righteous before God. They're forgiven of all their sins. They're indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. They're adopted into God's family. They are brought into his kingdom and they're given the gift of heaven forever. You see, when God regenerates a person and gives them repentance and faith and this new nature, they have a new allegiance. They have an allegiance to Christ as their Lord and their Master. They have a new, a new citizenship. It's not in the world. It's in heaven. And they seek to love God and their neighbor but they do not love this world anymore. The world is no longer their home. They don't look to this world for their peace and their satisfaction, but they look to Christ and their citizenship in heaven. And you see, this is what 
we see in true believers and true disciples of Christ. There is this new orientation to love God, to follow Him as Lord and Master, and to look to heaven and not to this world. And so this is what Jesus says, that we are to continually follow Him and not follow the, the world. We're not to love the world or the things of the world. So the Spirit continues to help us to turn away from those sinful tendencies. And it's a battle every day because there are times we do turn back to the world and we turn our backs on Christ. This is what Demas did. But if he was a believer, which I think there's evidence that he was, then by the Holy Spirit, he's going to come to a point of repentance and he's going to return to the Lord and experience the restoring grace of Christ and the forgiveness of his sins. So we as believers are not to love the world or the things of the world. This is what we read in our scripture reading in Matthew 16. At one point, Peter did not desire the things of Christ and Jesus rebuked him. And then we know later he denied Christ three times. He struggled against loving the comforts and the fear of man. But by God's grace, he repented and Jesus restored him and he received the grace that was his and the forgiveness that was his in Christ. So believers will continue to resist pursuing the world because they have Christ and his grace. And so I ask you, has Christ in his gospel transformed your heart so that your heart's overall desire and life direction is to serve the Lord and to seek his kingdom first. Well, God shows us in this passage that the Christian life is not immune from great disappointments. Being a believer and living for Christ doesn't deliver you from relational disappointments. So my second application question is this. Do you have a realistic view of the relational disappointments you will have in the Christian life? You will experience fierce opposition sometimes from non-believers like Paul did Alexander. People will hate you because of your commitment to Christ or, or, or your profession of faith in Him and the gospel. And some will seek to harm you in various ways. We should not be surprised by this. Jesus told us this would be the case. But we're also to realize that there will be Demases in our lives. People who were loyal friends and committed to Christ and His kingdom who desert us or desert Christ. And it will hurt deeply. And you know what? We'll be tempted to be angry and despise them. But you know what? We need to be reminded that we are all capable of this. And we're all in many ways throughout our lives turning our back on Christ and looking to the world temporarily as our idol. And so we need to not judge those who fall away temporarily uh, from a love for Christ and His kingdom. If people are believers and they turn to the world temporarily, the Lord will bring them back. He searches after His lost sheep and they will return. Look at John Mark. He was a deserter. He failed miserably in his first trip his mission trip. He 
disappointed. He abandoned the great Paul and Barnabas. But even more importantly, he turned away from doing what Christ wanted him to do. But John Mark was a true believer. The Holy Spirit convicted him. And he was encouraged that he had God's grace and forgiveness. He was restored. Boy, I would say not only restored, but he became a valuable co-laborer with Paul and with also Peter. God used him to write the gospel of Mark. Even a former shirker can become a major worker in the gospel enterprise. And so my third application point is this. The gospel restores us from Mark-like failures. The gospel restores us from Mark-like failures. Maybe you have been seeking after the world and you've turned temporarily your back on Christ. You haven't loved him with your whole heart. You haven't sought his kingdom first. Well, you know what? There is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. If you're a believer, the Lord will take you back. If you're not a believer, he will take you and forgive you if you confess your sins and look to him as your Lord and Savior. This is the wonderful thing about Jesus' grace. It is always sufficient to restore us and to make us useful for the kingdom of God. Finally, what we see in Paul is a true, godly, committed Christian, but who is also a human being. He fought the good fight of faith. He finished the race. He kept the faith. He had the Lord, and the Lord was always enough, even when no one else was around. But he needed human companionship. He needed Christian relationships and encouragement in his struggles. At the end of his life, as, as things intensified at the end, he sought his Christian friends, to be with him and to strengthen him. He needed the companionship of some strong believers around him. So he depended on Luke, who was with him, but he also reached out to Timothy and Mark to be with him. And then we see he also had physical needs that he didn't keep to himself. He asked for a cloak in a letter, a letter that was God's word. And I'm sure there are others who heard about various needs that he had. It's not a weakness. It's not a sin to ask for help from others for basic needs. He also asked for his books and his parchments. He needed more than ever to read and to study God's word, to be strengthened. And so here's my last application question. Are you seeking the relational physical and spiritual necessities of finishing well as a servant of Christ. When a person becomes a Christian, they're united with Christ, but they're also united to the body of Christ, the church. We are given gifts, gifts to serve one another. And people, other believers are given gifts to serve us. See, when you're a Christian, you're not an island. You need other believers and they need you you need tough friends for tough times and so when you come to worship when you engage in the activities of the church you're coming not just to receive you're coming to give and to encourage other believers let your needs be known for christian friendship and companionship let your physical needs be known and 
Also, strive to read good Christian books and to be in God's Word daily and to study with other believers. You know, the fear of death could have immobilized the Apostle Paul. It could have immobilized him into isolation. But instead, he let his needs be known in this letter. He also didn't give up once he found out he was sentenced to death. He was planning for the future to be as useful as he possibly could uh, with the time he had left here on this earth. And isn't it fascinating to think about? We don't know whether all four of them were able to get back together. But imagine that they did. You know, it took a couple months at least to go from Ephesus to, to Rome. But imagine they all made it along with the cloak and the books and the parchments. Imagine the encouragement that took place, the theologizing that took place, the strategizing that took place. Perhaps they were strategizing and planning for the writing of the Gospel of Mark or the writing of the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. Three of them wrote more than half of the New Testament. See, Paul refused to roll over in fear and passive self-pity but continues to place his life at God's disposal for ministry. God is saying, this is what is involved in the Christian life and what is necessary to finish well. The gospel causes us to be a part of a committed community who we can be real with and share our needs and concerns, seek to meet meet others' needs for companionship, physical needs, and spiritual growth. May it be so for us as we continue to run this race and fight this fight. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. It's hard to imagine this man had the presence of mind to write all that he did and then to express his needs facing execution. Oh Lord, give us this kind of faith. Help us to see that what Paul needed, we all need in the Christian life to finish well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.